This is Sean McComb, 2014 National Teacher of the Year, and you're listening to the New Teacher Podcast. The New Teacher Podcast. Get inspired. If you're a new teacher interested in hearing about the latest tips and tricks to inspire you in the classroom, you've come to the right place. The New Teacher Podcast features interviews with award-winning classroom teachers, the latest authors, and educational leaders recognized for their proven teaching techniques and strategies. Hear the stories of their success and failure. To listen to past episodes, view show notes, or to contact us, please visit our website at newteacher.org. Now here's your host, Anthony Arnold. Hello and welcome to the New Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Arno, and I'm so glad that you can join us here today. Today, we have Sean McComb, who's not only the former Maryland Teacher of the Year, but he would later become the National Teacher of the Year. Before we begin, I want to thank everyone for coming down to the NJEA Teachers Convention to say hello. We met with high school and college students, first-year teachers, and veteran teachers, not to mention all the supportive spouses. Thank you. So, let's meet our grand prize winner of the iPad Mini, then we'll go right to my talk with Sean. We have a special guest on our show, the winner of our iPad Mini contest, and it's Sheila Gambino from Connecticut. Hi, Sheila. How are you doing today? Hi, Anthony. Yay, I'm so excited that I'm a winner of something. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Obviously, you're a teacher up in Connecticut. Tell us a little bit about your teaching background. I am. I'm an instructional leader for career and technology education for the Region um, 12 public school system in Washington, Connecticut. And what were some of the takeaways from your attendance at the conference, either on the floor or at the uh, seminars upstairs? Well, I've been going for a couple of years, and it's always a great and diverse learning experience. One of the reasons I like to go is because I get a lot of teacher um, workshop experience and also a lot of leadership workshop experience. So one of my favorite workshops this year was about changing your perspective to achieve greater success, and that was given by Kenneth Piasek and Joseph Pizzo. And they talk about the growth mindset, which is not a new idea, but it's really starting to gain momentum now for a number of reasons. So it was interesting, informative, it was research-based, and they even presented with a a plethora of examples of different strategies that we could use with our own students. I'm currently reading Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, the New Psychology of Success. Carol Dweck's book is often recommended by state teachers of the year who have appeared on this podcast. So if you're a new teacher and you have not yet picked up that book, Mindset, please be sure to check that book out. Sheila, since returning back home from the convention and visiting the New Teacher Podcast booth, did you have a chance to listen to any past episodes of the show? I did. Um, I listened to a few teachers of the year, and the one that I most recently listened to, of course, was Anthony Grisola, which is the latest one that was uploaded. And I really liked the way he talked about so many different strategies that would inspire, that inspire me to reflect upon my own curriculum to see how I can further connect education experiences to students' personal stories. Um, he talks a lot about med- how media literacy is so important, and I think especially in today's day and age, we are all responsible for teaching students how to vet their resources. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for joining us 
at the Teachers' Convention, and congratulations again on winning the iPad Mini. And we want to encourage you to continue listening to the New Teacher Podcast, and please share it with all of your friends. Thank you so much. I definitely will do that. My guest today is the 2014 Maryland Teacher of the Year, and after a very selective process, he became the 2014 National Teacher of the Year. Please welcome to the New Teacher Podcast, Sean McComb. Sean, thank you for joining us today. How are you today? Thanks for having me, Anthony. I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Thank you again for joining us. Sean, tell us a personal story about a teacher that inspired you as a student, and what do you remember the most about them? Sure. Um, I had a, a great opportunity. I went to a, a public school that had a lot of extracurricular opportunities and one that I kind of fell into through some people I knew in 10th grade was called at our school the Viking Channel. It was basically our, our high school operated a, uh, a cable channel out of the high school and some student-created programming um, that played in our community only in the evenings. And the gentleman who ran that program was named Brian Reagan. And uh, Mr. Reagan was, you know, he worked from noon to 8 p.m., uh, gave kids a great opportunity to be creative, to pursue their own kind of interest in projects. And um, the Viking Channel came became a home away from home for me at a time when I really needed it. So what I remember most about Mr. Reagan is really just the feeling uh, of what it was like to be around him. You know, the, you know, I think it's my Angelou said, people may not remember what, exactly what you did or what you said, but I remember how you made them feel. And I remember Mr. Reagan made me feel valued. He made me feel like I belonged, and he made me feel like um, he believed in me. And, uh, you know, those things are, are priceless for someone who's 14, 15 years old and trying to figure out where they do have value and where they fit into the world. What a great mark for a great teacher. Sean, have you been in contact with Mr. Reagan in recent years? Yeah, um, after all the Teacher of the Year stuff, I uh, was able to go back to Upper Marion and uh, and surprise him and another teacher, Mr. Schertz, who both had a huge impact on me as a person. And I set it up with another teacher so that I was able to surprise them, and I was able to bring my then, I guess he was two-and-a-half-month-old son with me, and uh, they got to, to meet my little guy, and um, I got to stomp through the old hallways and classrooms and went out to eat, and, um, and it was great to reconnect in that way. We had seen each other a couple times um, in between there, but um, never uh, in the way that, uh, you know, they were able to just be very proud of, um, of me and, of course, of the impact they had on me as a person uh, at that time. So it was great to reconnect with him um, and get back in touch. What a great story. Sean, do you remember the exact moment when you decided that you wanted to become a teacher? So the idea of being a teacher, actually, I think the seed was planted all the way back in in fourth grade. I remember having a conversation with my father uh, because I'm a fourth grade teacher, Mr. Ryan. Um, We did some really cool things in that class that I can still remember to this day. They're actually some of my earliest memories. We hatched um, chicks in the classroom, and then each student had a chance to take those chicks home overnight one night. And I remember 
laying in the grass in my backyard and uh, and watching them hop along and just kind of being in awe of like the miracle of life. You know, we saw we saw these eggs hatch and then got a chance to play with the chicks. We um, we had a pen pal program with a sister school in Ireland, and I kept that pen pal. You know, started in fourth grade and went all the way through through high school, uh, writing back and forth with that. Uh, with that pen pal in Ireland, um, and he did some great things. So I remember having the conversation with my dad about you know the possibility of becoming a teacher um, with Mr. Ryan as the model. But when I really committed to it was um, was actually my senior year in high school, and that's um, you know I went through some challenging circumstances. Uh, my my mother passed away when I was a senior in high school, and um, I I delivered a eulogy at her funeral. And uh, I looked out in that audience, and, and Mr. Reagan and Mr. Shirk were both there. Wow, and, how sweet uh, is that? Yeah, see, and seeing them, you know, that, that definitely gave me some strength. And I don't know that it was that moment. I think my head was other places. But um, realizing the impact that they made on me, the strength that they gave me, how they helped me get through that moment, and the challenges that had preceded it um, made I, – I do remember feeling – going off to college that I wanted to do for others what they had done for me. Now, how did you go from raising chicks with Mr. Ryan's class to becoming an English teacher? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I did say that Mr. Ryan also made me editor of our class newspaper, uh, which uh, maybe meant that he saw some things um, there. But, um, you know, I, I think for me, English came from Mr. Schertz. So uh, Mr. Reagan had the, the broadcast journalism uh, thing, but then Mr. Schertz was my AP11 English teacher. And I remember feeling again in that class um, an awe at the way that he could take literature and kind of open this secret passageway to a deeper secondary meaning that wasn't there for me upon first reading. I remember the way that he challenged us to be creative as writers with word choice and structure and push ourselves to, to really think of ourselves as writers, as someone who's creating art and argument at the same time. Um, and really made, I remember one day distinctly that, you know, he would read from uh, some papers when he would get her to pass them back, read examples. And I, I remember the, the day that he read my opening to a, a theme paper on Huck Finn and feeling, you know, a swell of pride because I had worked hard and earned um, and and earned his encouragement and his admiration. And, and I think, you know, he made me fall in love with that, that content. And then, you know, that really blossomed in undergrad when I majored in literature. And so uh, the plan was to teach English from then on. Great. Now, were there any, ever any other careers you might have considered other than teaching as a youngster? Uh, there are pictures of me at at two years old running around in uh, a diaper, red rain boots, a <laughs> firefighter's hat with a two-foot-long piece of hose. Uh, so, so that was a possibility. Then I realized I was really afraid of fire. So uh, that one went out the window pretty quickly. But um, from from then on, you know, when I thought seriously about a career, it, it kind of had always been, been teaching. Um, right. You know, for whatever reason, I was comfortable. I had good role models. And um, and that was where where I felt called to go. Sean, give us a bit of background about your growing up and the challenges that you faced and how it made you a better teacher. Sure. Uh, you know, looking back on it, 
you know, I, I certainly faced some challenges, but I had some, I was very fortunate to have some social structures to help me get through it. And so, um, I would say when I was in second grade, my parents divorced, um, and I began living, uh, my mom had custody and so I was living with her, you know, the vast majority of the time. And, uh, what happened then in my middle school years was that, um, a uh, disease that runs through my family, which is alcoholism, started to rear itself and really started to affect my mother. Um, that, you know, happens different ways for different people. What it meant uh, for me was that when I got off the bus to open that door to come home from school, I didn't know what I would be opening it to, if right. it would be a calm and peaceful day when my mom felt healthy and, and was well, or if um, if she had been drinking and it meant that the next, you know, six to eight hours of my life would be uh, chaotic and combative and, uh, you know, corrosive to our relationship. Um, and for for a number of reasons, um, you know, uh, emotional and uh, guilt-ridden, I, I stayed in that situation um, all the way through the 11th grade. Uh, it meant that, you know, my home life made me feel differently about myself, about expectations for myself. Um, when I when I went to school, and you know, I did all the things that that living in that situations of trauma and poverty can do to kids. It it made me just distracted. It made me not do work at home. It made me get to school and find myself staring out the window for long periods of time. It made me lash out at others. It gave me a really biting sarcasm that was you know not great for other people. Um, and, it, and it did those things that I will say now makes me as a teacher um, really thoughtful and really forgiving when I see kids who seem like they're carrying burdens when they come into my classroom. Um, I was very fortunate that I had an outlet with my father um, a couple days a week that eventually when the situation got so bad that I had to uh, leave that home for my own well-being um, when I was a junior in high school that I had a place to go. And then I had really good friends who um, who I didn't want to disappoint or let on that I was struggling so much at school, and that kept me in in in, in high level classes where um, where I still did decently enough to get myself the opportunity to go to a four year college and, and kind of hit reset on my life um, after my mom eventually passed away due to complications uh, from from alcoholism. So. You know, those those are some serious challenges. Um, Absolutely. My, you know, but but now when I go in a classroom, like I said, I, you know, I I, I am able to be empathetic for students who face uh, the challenges of, of of trauma or having substance abuse in the home. Um, not that I know exactly what they're going through, but I can share um, share my story and share that. You know, I am someone who faced some of the challenges, was able to overcome them and, and get where I am, and that I can, uh, you know, in in what ways I can support them to do the same and connect them with people who are more properly trained than I am to help them get there the way that I was connected to. Right. Um, it also, it also, I think, makes me um, makes me believe in the work that we do as educators. In, in a way that I don't think I could know otherwise. I know what it's like to be on the other side of the desk and feel desperate and need more than anything else in the world for an adult who, who didn't, quote, have to believe in me and care for me to choose 
to believe in me and care for me and what that meant for me just as a human being um, to, you know, you, you know, your, your family is supposed to love you, but nothing says your teachers have to love you. Right. So when a teacher makes the choice to do that and to care and to share that, and, you know, the, they don't have to say it. They say it with their actions more than anything else. And that's what, you know, Mr. Schurz and Mr. Reagan did for me. And, and, and I just, you know, I know to my toes how that can make a kid feel. Um, whether they have the words to express it or not. And I certainly didn't when I was 15, 16 years old. What advice would you give a new teacher listening to this podcast who might have a student in their classroom who's carrying the burdens of others for a student? Yeah, so so it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, I think that the first thing I would say is, is to is to not, it's to put yourself in a position where you're not, adding on. Uh, you know, kids in that situation can be, can be really frustrating. They can be really challenging to the teacher. Um, and that's where I think it's most important. You know, what I try to do is to not put myself in a position where I trigger something in those kids. Um, you know, they're, they're dealing with enough and they might come in in a terrible place that day. And I have to remind myself that it's not about me. Um, and I, and, and I try to ensure that by not doing anything that can, that would make it about me. So, you know, for, for kids, um, where I might know that background, particularly I hold myself and the bar even higher to, to be patient and kind and to work with kids. It, it doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, a line, uh, and that I don't need to be firm with those kids at times, but it, it means that the tone that I take with those kids is always about trying to help them be successful, that I try to connect with where, with them and their goals about where they want to go and try to frame everything around helping them get there and explain how I'm doing that even when I'm drawing a line and even when I'm being firm. Um, I think the best advice for those, for kids who are facing that kind of challenge and any kid is, um, is to help it, is as a teacher to help kids see you as their teammate, that you're not working against them, that you are on their team supporting them to pursue the goals that they want to reach. And some days that means as, as a teammate that you need to hold them accountable. Some days as a teammate, you got, you throw them in assist. Some days, um, as a, as a teammate, you push them to work harder. And making them feel valued and belonged just like Mr. Reagan did for you. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Sean, you teach English and also the AVID program. What is the AVID program? Yeah, so uh, the AVID program is a program that exists across the country and even internationally. I got a chance to meet AVID teachers in Australia a couple years ago. Um, its, Its focus is to target students who come come to high school, and it exists in, in, to lesser degrees in middle school and even some elementary schools. But in our program, it starts in high school. Students who come to high school in the academic middle, so these are not our highest-flying kids and they are not our lowest-achieving kids, but the kids in the middle who uh, the vast majority come uh, are looking to be the first generation in their family to graduate from college. Um, in our school, the, the population of students in the program, almost all of them are looking to be first-generation college graduates. The vast majority of them are eligible for free and reduced meals, um, and many of them come from traditionally underserved backgrounds. Um, and so it, it targets that type of kid, the kid who has a dream to go to a four-year college, that's what they want for themselves, 
they need some support in making that happen. The support looks like in school, um, it's a part of this college knowledge. So being first generation, there's, you know, all the planning that, that many of us know about needs to start for, for college in ninth grade, whether that's the courses that you take, understanding GPA and how that works over time, um, and all the way through uh, SAT prep, college visits, bringing in admissions counselors, uh, really helping to catch that family up on, on the college process. It is also a class as part of their daily schedule. So in that class, it's uh, building college readiness skills, so reading, writing, inquiry, organization, and uh, it's about supporting them in the other academic content. So we do tutorials uh, twice a week that focus on students bringing questions from their content area classes and working through a, a collaborative process to help each other learn that material as well. And is AVID an acronym for anything? Yeah, Advancement via Individual Determination. Started uh, Mary Catherine Swanson in 1983 out in San Diego, California, and um, just a very sound program that has grown leaps and bounds and now serves kids all over the country. And how far have you seen some of your former students go in terms of attending colleges and what career paths have they taken? Yeah, so that's it's been uh, incredibly rewarding. So from our first class, um, there are students who, student who's a teacher down in Texas now, te- uh, students who work in the medical field, uh, nurses, uh, dental hygienists, a student who works at the um, National Security Administration, um, kids who have taken a uh, number of directions, officer in the military, um, a bunch of those kids. And um, we have, I have now my uh, second graduating class of students who I looped through. So I got to loop for four years with the kids in the AVID program as their teacher, just a, f- a phenomenal opportunity to, to really see kids grow and see different teachers can make for them. Um, who just graduated this year. So um, wow. uh, Saturday, I get to go to a graduation party. For, oh, that's great. Uh, for that's a great feeling. Students. It's wonderful, yeah. Now, as a state teacher of the year and a national teacher of the year, you're quite a role model. Um, for our listeners, I'll put a post on the show notes page, but there's an emotional video of one of your students, Brandy. Tell us the story about how she made you become a better person. Yeah, you know, I like Brandy is one of the students in my life who have done a great job of broadening me. So helping me see the world in a different way and experience the understand the experiences of some students in in different ways. So um you know, Brandy is one of the many students who have broadened me as a person, which is I think one of the the great advantages of being a teacher. Um, so, you know, here is a young lady who um, actually joined our AVID program in her 10th grade year. But at the beginning of the year, she came to me and said, you know, I don't think you want me in AVID anymore. And I said, why is that? And she said, I'm pregnant. And I said, all the more reason for you to be here and us to work together. Um, and that, and that was the beginning. So it started with Brandy thinking that she didn't deserve something because of a mistake that, um, that she had made. And what I saw over the next couple of years was um, not – it wasn't perfect, but it was a young lady who, um, who had, you know, reason to think – to lower her expectations and her goals for herself. 
and and work really hard um, through them uh, here. So over over two years, she worked incredibly hard while being a mom, while going home, and I'm experiencing that. You know, I have a two year old now, and I can't. It's hard enough for me as a you know 32 year old adult with right. a lot of things lined up the way it should be to be yeah. um, to be effective when I come home. For her to go home and do homework and study and do the work that she needs to do is incredible. Um, her family went through some challenges her senior year. Um, she, you know, things started to get really tough for her and, uh, she came in, um, with mom and things were not right. And, uh, she shared that, um, things had become abusive, that she was couch surfing with her daughter for different people's homes that, you know, she was facing, uh, incredible pressures. Meanwhile, she's still finding her way to school every day, not always on time, but she's finding her way to school every day. She's finding a way to get her daughter to childcare and maintain grades, um, that, you know, had gotten her into four-year college. And, you know, to, to see someone like that, who's overcoming so much, who's, who's able to, to face those challenges, um, for me, you know, it, it, it taught me some things about the human spirit, about, about what kids and, and people are able to do. She's, she's amazing. And it hasn't, you know, her life has not gotten any easier. Um, but, um, but she, we, we stay in touch and she continues to, to strive and work hard. And, you know, it's, it's even harder to go to college with some of those burdens on her. And that's been an up and down process, but, um, she's becoming an, an EMT Good and, her. uh, and working and, um, taking classes as she can. And, you know, she, she's still going and she's still in, in contact with me. And, um, and it's just, re- it's really impressive to see someone who, you know, could have easily dropped out, not only graduate, but graduate and go on to, to further education and, and, and keep pushing. Deep down inside, for me as a teacher, it just made me feel so good to be a teacher and to be one of your colleagues. So thank you for that. Uh, well, thank you. And I should I should tell you that so the day Teaching Channel came, um, you know, I still remember they had spoken to Brandy, and then uh, I came down to staff for an interview, and um, and the person said, "So Brandy," <laughs> and then it was like uh, <laughs> five minutes until I could speak again because uh, uh. you know we were just at a place where. We knew she was going to graduate, and we knew that she, you know, what she had was was fighting through and working through. And uh, it's it's still hard, you know, now to put into words, um, you know, what that relationship has meant to both of us. Um, and you know, this, you know, people ask like, why teach or ask for reasons why you teach, and you know, how do you how do you put that into a soundbite? <laughs> <You know, laughs> like, I've I've had the opportunity to make an indelible mark on someone's life, and they did the same for me. And we went through a journey together. And you know, accountants don't get that. No, <laughs> you know, lawyers don't get that, right? So you know, it's it's um, that, that's the beauty of it. It's we 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 work with human beings to help them become better versions of themselves, and that's the best work there is for me. Well, lucky for her, you became a teacher instead of a firefighter. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> As Maryland Teacher of the Year, you were nominated for the national title of Teacher of the Year. What was that nomination process like, and did you ever imagine that you would win that and become the national Teacher of the Year? Uh, not, not ever did I <laughs> conceive of that possibility. You know, 
the whole way along, you know, no one knows. I, I think teachers are so humble because we know our shortcomings like no other. You know, we know for the 20 kids who get it, the seven kids that don't. Uh, we know when we could have handled a situation or a question better or more eloquently or more efficiently. We know when lessons go wrong. You know, we know those things in a way that, that no one else does, not the students, not administrators. You know, we're, we are so aware of, of the challenges. And, and so, you know, we carry that. And, and I walked out of every uh, level of selection process from school to national thinking, I should have done this, should have said that, didn't, you know, didn't explain this well enough. Um, and then, you know, the whole way I'm meeting these other educators who are, you know, like placed here from the, by the almighty for the purpose of teaching. Um, and so, uh, so no, I never thought that it'd be possible. The, the process is from the state teacher of the year, you write about 17 pages, um, of writing about education in your classroom and who you are and what you believe in. You get three letters of recommendation. Uh, mine was from a principal, a parent, and a student. And you, you send it into a selection committee uh, from people from national organizations of uh, PTA to administrators to teachers uh, unions to ASCD and all these organizations. And they um, choose four of those uh, packets that, um, by consensus, they believe um, might serve as the as a, a great representative of great teaching for that year. And then the, those four finalists, we get a chance to meet one another and meet the other about 50 state and territory teachers of the year um, in January. And that's like teacher heaven, where you just meet <laughs> these these people from all over the country, just as passionate, just as creative and in many cases far more wise and intelligent and hilarious and um incredible and um and and you meet them and then the pressure is really on because you think there's a possibility that i might have to represent you know yes the three million teachers across the country but these 50 some absolutely first class human beings who make miracles happen across the country and then, and that's when it really feels heavy. Like, you know, I might yeah. have to represent this class of state teachers of the year. So, um, so we, you know, you go to Washington DC for two days and you meet the selection committee in, in various venues. There's an hour of Q and a, there's a short keynote, there's a press conference, there's a dinner. Um, and you meet them in all these different, uh, ways that a national teacher of the year spends their time representing educators. And, um, I should mention that uh, this, these two days, my wife was, uh, one and two days overdue, uh, oh with her first child. So <laughs> kind of a cra crazy time in my life, uh, you know, checking my phone, make sure he's not going into labor. Um, we get through the two days, drive back from DC to Baltimore. Uh, she's induced the next morning at 7am and, uh, late that night we are parents. So, oh uh, crazy time. I get the call eight days later, uh, when we've been at home for four days. And, um, you know, as I'm holding a, a sleeping infant in my arms, uh, my uh, state superintendent tells me I've been selected as a national teacher of the year. So we were into a double adventure where we had no <laughs> idea what was what was happening uh, to us for next year. Life. So it was a whirlwind. 
um, but it was an incredible blessing and a wonderful opportunity. And and representing teachers is, of course, the, the greatest part of that honor. Now, you didn't drop the baby when you heard the news, did you? No, no, no. Uh, that would have uh, dropped the phone first. Uh, <laughs> luckily, he was uh, sleeping in kind of like full-on koala uh, mode, so he was he was resting on the chest and uh, and we were good. It also helped keep the celebration calm because you don't want to wake the sleeping baby. And what additional responsibilities did you have that year as the National Teacher of the Year? Yeah, so the National Teacher of the Year is um, actually released from the classroom for the year to represent the profession full-time. I understand the irony of that, that you get an award for teaching and then are removed from the classroom for a year. Uh, I, I, I get that. Uh, but the, the role is to be a representative, and so one must go forth and represent so uh, during that year, um, I traveled to 26 different states. I traveled internationally to China, Australia, and England. Um, I met with the Secretary of Education on multiple occasions. I you know, had the opportunity to, to meet the president. He held my two-month-old son at uh, the National Teacher Ceremony, um, and uh, you know, I spent I spent a lot of time on the road. Got to see uh, teachers' classrooms and speak at conferences and meet educators from all all across the country, including multiple trips to places like Arizona and Kansas and Indiana and North Carolina, where it's it's really difficult to be a teacher right now. Um, and uh, and some months there were a few months that year where there were. Um, three or four days when I went to when I woke up and went to sleep in my bed um, on both ends of the day. So wow. there's certainly some some very very busy uh, times. My uh, we were very thankful that my in-laws were about ten minutes from us, and my wife could kind of just move in with them with the infant when yeah. I was on the road. Um, and you know it's an incredible opportunity. And I'll say my greatest takeaway is. Um, is how incredible the people who do this work all over the place are, whether they've been uh, fortunate enough to receive uh, specific recognition or not. Um, I just met people who were incredibly passionate about the work that they do and, and serving children and, and doing great work for them uh, in all corners of this country. And, um, you know, I, I had always thought that there were probably incredible teachers, not just at my school, not just at Pataskal High School and Center for the Arts, but but all over the country. And, and boy, I met a lot of them that year, and it was an honor to do so. Now, in your travel to other countries such as China, Australia, and England, what did you see as an educator compared to the United States educational system? Yeah, so, so similarities and differences. Um, you know, in a, in a place like China, you know, I, and I actually had the, the opportunity to live in China for two months, um, chaperoning 27 kids from our school district uh, in 2012. So I had some familiarity with their system already. But, you know, there, the cultural emphasis on education and the, um, the respect and the um, importance that that parents and, and the culture as a whole put on that work um, is incredible. Uh, at the same time, it might be a little much, right? So if people are familiar, there's an exam that's taken at the end of high school called the Gaokao, and that determines um, the quality of the university and, in many cases, basically the quality of life that um, a, 
a student will have as a professional for the rest of their life. What that means is that from elementary school, students are competing for test scores. They're competing for test scores in order to get into the best middle school possible. Their parents are sometimes sending them to live at, at these schools or, or nearby, and, uh, and parents are working and just sending money to support the kids to be at these schools. Then the middle schools, they're competing to get in the best high schools. And then similarly, you know, some of the students who exchange with our school were 15 years old and living in a city of 8 million people and going to school, and they were living hours away from, um, from their families. Um, and all of this is to chase a, a score that will get them into a university that will get them the job that they want for the rest of their lives. Um, so there is respect, but at the same time, you know, it would, everyone bows to the almighty test. And, um, and, and they're seeing ramifications of that, you know, in their ability to innovate and be creative. And, and that's been pretty well covered by Yang Zhao and, and others. So, you know, I certainly saw that. When I was in China, at the same time, you know, when I traveled to rural places in China, I had one teacher stand up and say in a Q&A session, you know, he said he gets paid the equivalent of $300 a month, and would I feel uh, respected and valued if that was what I got paid? Yeah. That was, you know, a real wake-up call. Wow. In other yeah. places, they're ex- extremely well-supported. So, so you know, there's a, an example of a system that uh, works very differently. Um and, and, you know, has its benefits in the way that parents emphasize education and, and drawbacks as well. Um, both England and Australia are, are much more similar to the United States. Um, there, are, there are still differences. Um, England particularly is a little bit more uh, privatized um, as far as their equivalent of charters uh, and their prominence um, in, in that um, in that area, and um, and Australia, you know, similarly, they uh, they are they are fairly similar to the United States, but they do have uh, a little bit more career tracking at the secondary level, where students are making choices about being on a university track or more of a technical track um, about halfway through their high school experience. What was it like meeting the president of the United States at the uh, recognition ceremony? Yeah, that, well, that's that was the definition of a surreal experience. Um, you know, the the next day, I could I could have been convinced that it hadn't happened, <laughs> but there was a lot of photographic evidence that it did. Um, you know, for for one, I have to just kind of put in perspective that I I was nervous enough. You know, one would be very nervous to meet the president of the United States, but not only was I going to meet the president, but Immediately afterwards, I was going to give a speech at the presidential podium that would be archived in um, the National Archives and be in front of the White House press corps. So, you know, if there was ever a time to not blow a speech, uh, that was it, too. And I was going to do it, you know, representing these 50 incredible people who would all be standing behind me. So uh, so the nerves were going. And then on top of that, we have a two-month-old who, you know, we're saying our prayers about no diaper blowouts, uh, <laughs> about him being quiet and copacetic and taking it well. But um, so the president walked into the room, and, and I was there with my wife and child, my father and my sisters, and my in-laws. And my mother-in-law was holding uh, Silas, our son, at the time. And the president walks in and says, 
I hear there's a baby. Give me that baby. <laughs> and um, with, with all the gusto of a new grandmother, when he walks over to my mother-in-law, she says to him, are you sure you know what you're doing, Mr. President? <laughs> before she, before she hands over her grandson. And, uh, and he said, ask anybody around here. They'll tell you I'm the baby whisperer. <laughs> said, uh, you have an upset baby, give him to me and, and I'll rock him. And, and he did, he picked up scoops of Silas and he walked him around and, uh, and Silas was cooing and he was rocking him and went over the photographer and had some pictures of just the two of them. And, um, and it was an amazing, an amazing moment. Uh, you know, I got to see my father, I got to do something that created the opportunity for my father to shake the hand of the president. Wow. Of the States. You know, cool what, what, what a great moment. Yeah. And, and he was, he was cool and he was funny and, um, and he was able to speak to some of the service projects that I did with my students when we had a few moments once my family had been seated, um, which was incredible. You know, even if for just a few moments, the president of the United States was aware of some of the, the service projects that my students had done. And, uh, the secretary uh, remarked, "Wow, you you really you really done your homework." And you know, I'm in that moment, like I haven't said anything really yet, and I'm thinking, "What you know, what do I say to these two guys?" And uh, and so I just said, "Well, it's a good thing you did your homework because you know teachers have a sixth sense when you're you're lying about doing your homework." And they uh, they did me the favor of a chuckle, and uh, and then we went out and we did the ceremony. So it was it was amazing, um, and and I you know I'm looking right now at a picture of uh, the president looking down at my son as a two month old, and that'll be uh, something I'll be talking about to to him when he's older and his children one day. And, and I'll and tell his that. grandkids how cool is that. Yeah, yeah. So as the teacher of the year, what was the message you shared with your colleagues and upcoming teachers, new teachers across the country when you met with them? Yeah, so. I think the the core of my message is about the the opportunity that we have as teachers to spark hope uh, for kids, and that that word hope has gotten kind of kicked around and um, and not given I think the reverence it deserves. Uh, sometimes we think of hope as something that's like I hope there's no traffic on my way to work tomorrow, or I hope Silas learns to potty train over this. Uh, summer break, things where there's really no chance of that happening. You know, it's, it's wishful thinking. That's what we, we call hope now. But hope has much deeper origins as an ancient virtue, which means um, a belief in a bright future and the ability to make it happen. And, uh, you know, I think back to Mr. Reagan and Mr. Schertz, when I think about when I, uh, you know, when students leave my classroom next week, I want them to leave believing that there's a bright future out there for them a little bit more than when they walked in the door. And I want them to feel like they have the skills and the capacity and the, you know, the, the habits to go out there and make it happen. And, and that's what I mean by, by sparking hope. Um, it's not just sparking achievement uh, or something that could be easily measured on a test, but it's that, indelible mark that we have the opportunity to leave on another life that makes them believe about what's possible for them in their lives. Hope is the prerequisite to growth, to achievement, to college and career readiness, to um, a life well-lived. It's it's the prerequisite belief that you deserve it and that you can go out there and make it happen for yourself. Um, and I think that you know, that's the deeper calling to teaching, you know, especially in secondary level, many are passionate about our subject area. But, um, 
if you're not passionate about kids, there are a lot of other ways to deal with your subject area that don't involve, uh, involve children. So um, that idea of sparking hope, our ability to do it, the reminder for some of us that, you know, that no matter what administrators might emphasize or what they look at at school board meetings, um, that those of us who are still in the classroom, um, we know that that's, that's what it's all about when you, when you close the door and you have a group of kids that you're going to shepherd uh, for a year to, to be in a better place come June. Now, after your travels for one year as the National Teacher of the Year, you visited over 26 states and several countries. You went back into the classroom. What was that like for you? Yeah, <laughs> so so this year I'm in a hybrid role, uh, which is great. So I'm in the classroom uh, every other day uh, teaching students English, and my students are in an A-day, B-day schedule, so they don't miss me at all on B-days, and I'm their A-day teacher, and, and that works out really well. I have to say, um, man, did I feel expectations in a way that I had never before. You know, the, the students, uh, you know, they knew they knew uh, it's, a, it's a small, tight-knit community. So even though, you know, when we had all the hoopla at school, they were in eighth grade, uh, many of them had siblings, and, you know, they just, they, they knew um, who I was coming in. And so, um, so on the one hand, you know, I saw a lot of expectations to have this, uh, you know, incredible year, rainbows and lollipop and fireworks, you know, every day. And, um, and at the same time, I was coming off of, of the most incredible sabbatical I could imagine. You know, I, I got a year to sit back, to think about education in a very broad way, to meet incredible people doing great work across the country in, in different ways and really re, you know, reevaluate and rethink what I wanted my classroom to be about. And then I had the chance to go back in and, you know, nobody was going to tell me <laughs> coming back that I should do it this way or that way. You know, I really felt like I had carte blanche to, to do, to teach the way I wanted to. And what I had settled on was, was a belief that I could craft a classroom that was driven by by these students and who they were as people and what they're interested in and what they want to learn about. And, and in English language arts, I can still teach them to be critical readers and expressive writers and great thinkers, um, you know, dealing with the topics that interest them and, and resonate with who they uh, are as people. And so... We had, so I had surveyed the students um, before coming back in June and had them tell me the things that they cared about. And they came back with, you know, they had a lot of questions about identity, which is probably not surprising to anyone who works with teenagers. Uh, how, how do you be true and authentic to who you are growing up in a society that's always telling you who you should be? What shapes your pathways to adulthood? Um, how do we form and shape identities? Those are the questions that they wanted to pursue, and so those became our essential questions. And then they had a lot of, cur- of interest in current events and topics that had to do with justice, uh, civil rights, and race uh, on the heels of um, the you know Freddie Gray and the uprisings in Baltimore, um, civil rights and LGBTQ issues, which is you know is huge and, and pertinent right now. They wanted to study the refugee crisis and they wanted to study the, the justice system. And so I, I built a course around those things that they wanted to learn about. And the return on that was incredible in terms of the authentic engagement that, that kids had in that work and what they produced in awareness campaigns and service projects and, and great 
writing and presentations and um, and sharing their learning with others. It has been uh, it's been so rewarding to to come back and and to teach that way. What is one thing that you might have collected during your sabbatical as National Teacher of the Year that has very special meaning to you? Um, I collected uh, so one particular item that I have is um, is a post-it note that I got in Kansas um, from a presentation that I did in a tiny town in an elementary school gym for like 60 teachers. And, and I say all that because, you know, on the other end of that spectrum, I spoke to 9,000 teachers at the NEA uh, annual convention in Denver uh, in, the, in a room that I didn't know could get that large uh, inside a convention center um, to a sea of, of humanity. So at this other one, you know, I got a, a post-it from this teacher who, um, who kind of came by at the end of the day was talking to someone else and like with a tear and I put this post-it note on, on a table that said, um, that for weeks she had been wrestling about whether or not she should give up on teaching. And, um, and that day she decided that she wouldn't give up. Um, so, you know, that, that's a little post-it when I, uh, I wonder about, this time that, you know, you spend blogging or speaking or going on podcasts and, and, you know, is this, are, are people listening? Doesn't it have an effect on people? Um, you know, that posted and, and a few others that, um, have messages from people that, that just remind me that we need each other in this work, that we need to share our stories and share our challenges and our successes and, um, and the honesty about doing the work and the challenges of doing the work because, um, because it can be really hard, and and I and I think that most teachers have sometimes where they ask themselves, "Is it really worth it?" And we sometimes need to hear from each other, and we sometimes need to hear from students, um, and we sometimes need to hear from their parents and other people in the community to remind us that what may not be the rewards of salary or the awards that are uh, too far and few in between for all the great people who do this work that um, the rewards of of the work are in the people, and um, and that that's the most valuable thing of all. So you were able to spark the hope in that teacher. I yeah, I guess so on that day, and um, and you know I I'm just thankful to have the opportunity and to share my kids and colleagues and the people who have shaped me um, and a little bit about what we do and um, and all the the people that I've had the great fortune of with who have who have been the ones who have sparked hope in me, um, and that you know I. I hate to say that it's, you know, I don't think it's about me. I think it's about what happens when people who care about doing this work really well get together. For all the new teachers out there listening to this podcast, what is one thing that you could recommend they could do tomorrow morning in their classroom to spark hope for their students in front of them? So, yeah. So here's something I did my first year. Uh, so if you're that teacher who's at school until 7 or 8 o'clock at night, um, I was that teacher, too, last time in the parking lot, working my butt off. And because, you know, for any number of reasons, I wasn't getting the 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 reward back out of it that I thought I wanted. I wasn't getting fueled by the work that way that I wanted to. And what I came to realize was, you know, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. I'm sitting in the chair, staring out the window, drooling on myself because I'm so tired. Mm. Um, 
And I found my mind, that my mind was wandering to the negatives, to the things that didn't go well, the situation I could have handled better, to the kid who you know had a bad moment and I didn't do a great job with it. And, I, and eventually I realized I had to stop. And so what I chose to do is spend those 15 minutes that I was exhausted instead with a giant stack of Post-it notes. And so I would take five or six Post-it notes and I'd put them on the desk and I would force myself to think of five or six uh, kids who had good days and kids who did well. And I would just write them brief little notes, uh, just gratitude for their contribution or who they were that day or what they said or did for somebody else. And, um, and the next day when they walked in, I'd put that post-it note on their binder or on their desk or on their forehead if we had that kind of relationship. And, um, and, and what that did for me was that it, it started to train me to find the positives in the work and the kids. Um, and, and that really helped me start to reshape and rethink about the way that I chose to think about the work and to think about the classroom and the kids and the culture that we were building, building together. That's great. In fact, I'm going to do that tomorrow morning when I go into my classroom. Thank you. Okay. I love it. I love it. Sean, what is one mistake that you made during your teaching career, and what did you learn from that mistake? Um, so, you know, one is I'm, I, made, I make mistakes every day. I made mistakes today. Um, and... Um, and it's, I think an important thing is about the mindset that we have around our mistakes, that we accept that they are going to happen, and what matters is that we learn from them and try not to repeat them in the same exact way. Um, a mistake that I made early in my career, uh, and for, I think, a very good reason, is that I did not um, open myself up enough to feedback from students. And I didn't do that because I felt really vulnerable because I felt, you know, if I had a bad day that that was going to be a, you know, a referendum on my career and my future as a teacher and a bad day, you know, I sit and think, you know, is, uh, you know, am I good at this or could this, is this even going to happen for me? And, um, and some bad student feedback or some tough student feedback probably would have put me in a bad place at that time. But a few years ago, I started intentionally soliciting the thoughts of my students about how my, I could be better and how our class could be better. And the strides that I've made in my own practice and in the, the course that I'm able to craft for students um, is so much better because I asked students for that feedback. And that happens in the form of a survey. My kids took their year-end survey on Tuesday. Um, and I use the tripod uh, survey if, if teachers are looking for something uh, particular. Uh, but this year, I've also started doing um, uh, focus groups for feedback. So on a day that I might be absent or even I'm in class, I just put my headphones in for a while. I, I have a few student leaders um, lead small groups in, in, in feedback. So they become like a filter so that the feedback is still anonymous but it's delivered in then a conversation, you know, that, that day after school or the next day at lunch. And I sit with those student leaders and we have a conversation about the feedback that they heard, try to find patterns. And I work with those kids to try to find solutions. And, um, and that's been incredible. Uh, it's so much better for me than a survey because we're able to have a real conversation around it because they're able to help me think creatively from a perspective that's really hard for me to get my head into, which is the student's perspective. Um, it's been phenomenal. Uh, Teaching Channel was able to capture it the first time I did it this year. If anybody's listening and they want to check it out, um, they can head to the Teaching Channel and, 
and, and find that video. Um, but, but getting feedback from the students to understand how they are feeling has made me a much better teacher, and I wish I had been doing it earlier in my career. Okay, we'll put a link on the show notes page. What is it like, though, taking the constructive criticism from your students, and how would you take it, not take it personally? What do you suggest for a teacher not to take it personally? Well, it's hard. Uh, I mean, I'll start by saying I, I gave that survey on Tuesday. I haven't looked at the results yet um, because, you know, I need to be in a, in a certain place uh, and at a certain piece to do that. Um you know, one thing that has made it better is is in those focus groups, what I'm able to do is to explain to the kids where I'm coming from, the constraints that I have to operate under that they might not realize when they're giving feedback. So that's another way that I like that more than the survey is that, you know, sometimes their feedback coming coming from a perspective where they don't understand the big picture. And so maybe they don't like the book that we're reading, but you know, there's for some reason the curriculum I have to, I had to use that book or something like that. At the same time, you know, there are times where, you know, one of the questions that I always make sure to ask kids is there's ever a time that you felt disrespected um, because from me in the classroom. And one time I got one from a student where, you know, I, I thought it was clear that I was joking and she didn't think that it was a joke or, you know, didn't take it in that way. And that was hard, you know, that was hard to read, but it, I had to sit with that. I had to, to say that's where she was in that moment. Doesn't mean that I've never joked with kids since then, but it has meant that I've been more careful doing that. And that's right. a, a place to grow. You know, we, we have to be in a place where we, you know, take, take some of that tough feedback to heart and, and honestly about it and then act on it. But, I'd much rather get the harsh feedback, change what I'm doing, act on it, and make it a better experience for kids the next year than to, to go and do the same thing and make the same mistakes and not get better for kids. I'm much more, I'm much more worried about you know, remaining mediocre or remaining ineffective uh, or less effective than I could be for kids than I ended up getting a little hard feedback that I need to grow from. Right. Perception is 100% reality. <laughs> Especially for a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> What is one book you could recommend to our new teachers that would help them become a better teacher? Oh, there are, um, there are a lot. Um, for me, many of them are um, content specific, but um, one that I will absolutely recommend is uh, Fires in the Bathroom by Kathleen Cushman. Um, and so that's one when I uh, adjunct that's one that's always on our, our book list, and um, it's, it's student perspective. So she asks students about their perspectives on, you know, the, the subtitle advice for teachers from high school students, and there's also a, uh, a middle school version. And so there's, you know, all kinds of candid advice in the words of students on, you know, motivation and boredom, on uh, respect, liking, trust, and fairness on all the things, you knowing your students well, all the things that go into creating the, the classroom culture and environment that will help kids to strive and all of those soft skills that those of us who have been in the classroom for a long time know are, are make or break for helping kids to be successful. And what I love about it is that it's, it's in the voices of students and it's real. And, um, you know, 10 years into my career, 
uh, I think there's so much wisdom in here from the kids. So I would, I would definitely recommend picking up uh, Fires in the Bathroom by Kathleen Cushman. We'll have that link on our show notes page. What is one internet resource that has helped you become a better teacher that you could recommend to our new teacher listeners? Uh, here, I have to plug uh, the teaching channel, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm working with them as a teacher laureate this year, so um, they have a, a page together with the blogging that I've done this year as I've gone into this journey to make my classroom more personalized uh, for the students and more based on you know, who they are as people um, and some videos that I've done with them, but the videos you know, for whatever kind of way that you want to grow your practice as a teacher, there's a way to connect with some videos that show it happening in the classroom with the teacher reflecting on their process. And oftentimes, even with the resources from the lesson embedded on the page. And there's also a, a, a it's also a community, right? So uh, there are conversations happening on these videos in the comments section. There's, I'm part of a laureate team with teachers from across the country at all different contents and levels who are, who are working to connect with teachers and, and grow other teachers. So I think it's a wonderful, not just uh, website, but a, a real community of teachers uh, to, to support new teachers. Do you have an inspirational quote that you can share with our listeners today? Uh, well, here's a, the, I was asked uh, by CBS News on a, a piece for when I was announced as National Teacher of the Year. You know, they said, what's your kind of teaching philosophy? And I had been talking with a mentor of mine, just messaging on Facebook the night before. And uh, he, he said to me at the end, he said, remember what's important. And, um, and when I said back to him, the same thing I told the reporter from CBS, which is uh, kids before content and love before all. So that's been my kind of mantra. Um, you know, I, I, I try to remember to say that I teach students English to put the students at the front of that sentence because I believe that they come before the English, the students come before the English, the kids before the content. And, um, and everything I've experienced as a student and as a teacher has just furthered my belief that love has to come before all of those things um, for, for kids to thrive. Kids before content and love before all. Yes, sir. Sean, what's the best thing about being a classroom teacher? Uh, the kids. Uh, I, I get to have fun every day. I laugh every day. Um, kids are so diverse and amazing and wonderful, and uh, the students that I work with make me a better and broader person every day. Um, every day that I, you know, I'll, that I slow myself down and take the time to to hear them and engage with them and give them the floor and, you know, step off the stage and, um, and hear from them. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in a really hard place right now to say goodbye to the, the kids that I'm working with this year. In fact, like I, I have such a hard time that I, I, I offered them like a leadership mentoring program for next year so I could hang on to like 10 or 12 of them and continue working with them next year. Um, you know, I just, I'm amazed by the kids that I have the, you know, great fortune to work with. The many of them are overcoming some incredible challenges. Others are just really neat, insightful, thoughtful uh, people who give me great hope 
for uh, the next generation. So for me, it's the kids. And then if I, have, if I can say a second thing, it's my colleagues. It's the people that I get to work with who go to the ends of patience and the ends of the earth uh, to make things happen for the kids in our community. And they are um, amazing and resilient and resourceful people who are uh, an inspiration to work with. And I, I hope the people listening are able to connect with the people in their building and community who uh, help them feel inspired as well. Okay. And we'll be right back after this announcement from Teacher Lingo. TeacherLingo.com is an online marketplace where educators can buy, sell, and share teaching resources with one another while earning royalties as high as 85%. Standard membership is absolutely free and allows you to earn a higher commission compared to other sites. Premium membership is only $49 and allows you to earn 85% royalty with zero transaction fees. Whether you're a new teacher or a veteran teacher, why not supplement your income with proven activities and lesson plans that you've already created at TeacherLingo.com? Sean, are you ready for the final period before the final bell? I'm ready. Morning person or night owl? Both. Mac or PC? PC. Favorite book from your childhood? Uh, the Narnia series. First paying job? Uh, peddler of ice cream cones. One television show you try to watch every week? Uh, the NBA playoffs. Latest music download or song playing on your iPod? Uh, Radiohead, the Benz album. One famous person that you would invite for dinner, either living or dead? Abe Lincoln. It's a snow day. What are you going to do with this unexpected day off from school? Uh, sleep. Uh, watch my son uh, play in the snow with the dog and uh, find some time to read. The next item on your bucket list? I would like to see Machu Picchu. And there's the final bell. Sean, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, please do. So uh, I, I love to hear from and interact with teachers uh, all over the place. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at at Mr. Underscore McComb, and uh, a good email for me is SeanMcComb at gmail.com. And uh, my website is SeanMcComb.com. So for the new teachers out there, um, everyone says it, uh, but it is true. Those first few years are, are so difficult, and those, there's a steep learning curve, but, um, but it is so worth it to reap the rewards of, uh, of being a, a, a later career teacher and being able to make a huge difference for kids. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Teacher Podcast. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you. There he is, Sean McComb, 2014 Maryland State Teacher of the Year and later to become the National Teacher of the Year. Thank you, Sean. Please be sure to check the show notes page to see videos that we spoke about during the talk with Sean. Next time on the New Teacher Podcast, Roger King, the current Wisconsin State Teacher of the Year. Here's a clip of my talk with Roger where he's explaining exactly what agri-science is. So I'm from New York City. Tell me and our listeners, what exactly is the field of agri-science? Well, agri-science is a... The subject matter revolves around agriculture, the growing of plants and animals. And when students come to my classroom and they say, what's the purpose of this classroom? And I turn to them and I say, your job, if you choose to go into agriculture, is to feed the world. And 
whatever you do, think about the fact that if it's a new technology in whatever, does it apply to the world of agriculture? That's Roger King, the next time on the New Teacher Podcast. Well, that's our 19th show, and thank you for listening. This is the New Teacher Podcast, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. Be well.